So this fall, we've been asking the question, why church? We've been trying to understand who we are and what God has called us to as his people. We started out this series with Jesus' teaching that the church is the place where God's eternal kingdom breaks into history. What this means is that when we come to faith in Jesus, trusting in him for salvation and seeking to follow him, he welcomes us as citizens of the kingdom of God. So today we're going to return to this foundation, this foundational teaching of Jesus in order to ask what kind of impact this has on how we live as citizens of the United States or wherever it is that we take up residence during our earthly lives. Now this was an incredibly important topic for the Apostle Peter, who wrote a pair of letters to a cluster of churches in what is now Turkey. And in these letters, he worked through the implications of their dual citizenship as residents of the kingdom of God and the empire of Rome. We read from chapter 2 of Peter's first letter a few moments ago, and you can find it on page 1015 of the Red Bibles. I hope you'll turn there with me. Page 1015, 1 Peter chapter 2. As we make our way through this passage, we're going to look first at verses 9 through 10, which take up this topic of citizenship and remind us who we are. Then we'll consider verses 11 and 12, which explain how we are to live as a result of who we are in Christ. And then finally, we'll turn to verses 13 through 17, which give us guidance on how to relate to the human institutions that govern us. So verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The people to whom Peter was writing were scattered among five different cities. This Christian community was tiny, it was dispersed, it was persecuted, and it was without influence. And yet Peter tells them they they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's an incredible description of the church, both then and now. We've been chosen by God to be his people. We've become royalty, set apart for the purpose of bringing God's blessing, proclaiming God's blessing to the world. We've been made holy, shown mercy, rescued from darkness. And in all of this, we've been drawn together as a kind of nation, a people scattered around the world without physical borders, held together by the presence of God's Holy Spirit. What Peter affirms in a fundamental way is the fact that in Christ, we are all dual citizens. We may be citizens of the United States of America, most of us here, but we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's going to impact the way we live, which is the subject of the next paragraph, verses 11 and 12. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Like the original recipients of this letter, we too are God's beloved children. But we're also sojourners and exiles. The two terms have different connotations. Sojourner emphasizes transience. A sojourner is a person moving through a place on her way to somewhere else. The term exile was a technical term in the Roman Empire at this time, and it was used to describe resident aliens, people who lived in the empire, but who weren't citizens and therefore didn't possess the basic rights that citizens possessed. When Peter refers to Christians as sojourners and exiles, He's making clear that our home and our citizenship are elsewhere. We live here, wherever here is, but we're headed home to eternal life with God through Jesus Christ. Our residence may be Raleigh, North Carolina, but our home is the kingdom of God. So I spent most of my 20s living in England. And of course, they speak the same language there, at least for the most part. And the English often refer to us as their cousins, but we are very different people. When an American takes up residence in England, he is every bit as much a foreigner as anyone else coming from abroad. During my time in England, I came to the conclusion that there are three basic types of foreigner. First, there is the conformist. The person who does everything he possibly can to look and act like a citizen of his new home. So this is the guy, imagine this, this is the guy who moves to England from Wayne County and immediately begins to talk like an Oxford professor. (laughs) He buys new clothes, he changes his glasses, he learns to walk differently. To put it simply, he does everything he possibly can to conform to the society around him and to erase the trappings of his homeland. That's the conformist. Then there's the critic. This is the guy who moves to England and immediately starts complaining. He thinks national health care is stupid, that driving on the other side of the road is crazy, that English men are all wimps, that even the water tastes bad in this place. The critic can be so overbearing and negative that no one wants to be around him, even those who agree with some of what he says. He can find nothing good about the foreign land where he's been called to live. Well, finally, there's what I think of as the comfortable alien. These are the folks who adapt to English ways without shedding their identity. A comfortable alien from Wayne County realizes that no one in England can understand a word he says, so he softens his accent and he tries to adjust his diction in order to be understood, at which point the English can understand about 20% of what he says. The comfortable alien never tries to be something that he isn't. At times, He sticks out like a sore thumb, but he's not bothered by it. He'll argue over politics, but graciously so. He'll love his adopted home, but he will never forget his roots. As I watched these different types of foreigners in action, I learned learned that no one respects a conformist. No one likes a critic, and no one really understands a comfortable alien. The first is a fake, 
The second is a bigot. The third is a mystery. I think it's probably clear which type of foreigner I was trying to be. I was trying to be a comfortable alien. But I came to realize that there was a price to pay. No one would really understand me. But here's the thing, that was okay. It's okay. These same three options are there for us as we live out the Christian life. We can be conformists, pledging allegiance to Jesus, but living just like everybody else. We can be critics, constantly denouncing the sins of the world while harboring our own insufferable pride. Or we can learn to become comfortable aliens, recognizing that this world, this country is not our home, and coming to terms with the fact that our way of life is going to look strange to the non-believers around us. This third way of life is what Jesus calls us to. And he is fully aware of the tension that we will live with as a result. The night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed for his disciples. And he asked God the Father to give them and us the ability to live in this world faithfully as resident aliens. I want to turn back to that prayer very briefly in John 17. I'm not going to reread it. I just want to highlight four prepositional phrases that Jesus uses when talking about the world in which we live. So in verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Then in verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. By adopting us as his own, Jesus has pulled us out of the world, even though we remain in the world. In verses 14 and 18, he unpacks this a little bit more. In verse 14, Jesus says, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Then in verse 18, he explains, as you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As Jesus' disciples, we've been pulled out of the world, even though we still live in the world. We are not of the world, but have been sent into the world. We're in and out. We're not of, but sent to. Let's go back to 1 Peter to see what this means, practically speaking. So verse 11, once again. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. The world in which we live and this particular country where we reside, they are going to promote ways of life that are in conflict with God's way of life. The passions of our flesh, as Peter calls them, are constantly being shaped by the preoccupations of our culture. And these wage war against the health of our souls. Peter invites us to name them, abstain from them, and live as aliens instead. Now this raises an important question. Can Christians be aliens and patriots at the same time? Can we love the kingdom of God and the land of our birth? Now the answer 
is yes. It's a strong yes, but also a careful yes. Patriotism, as an expression of love and gratitude, is a wonderful, natural thing. Even when we are most frustrated with our country, we're right to love it and her people. If you're looking for further reading on this, pick up a copy of C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, where he has a wonderful reflection on godly patriotism. There are some, however, for whom patriotism means my country, right or wrong. There are some for whom love of country means absolute loyalty, either to the state itself or to some idealized vision of the state. That's not the way of Jesus. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, this is what he said. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the first. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Within the Christian tradition, love for one's homeland has always been considered an aspect of love for one's neighbor. And that comes second to love for God, and it's shaped by our love for God. This has an impact on how we think about loyalty. As followers of Jesus, our allegiance is to God and God alone. We're citizens of the kingdom first. Any loyalty we show to our homeland or to our nation is secondary, and it has to be judged as an expression of love. In other words, whenever loyalty to one's nation contradicts God's love, that loyalty has become misplaced. Now I realize this is pretty theoretical and I wanna to try to be practical. I think we're all aware of just how politically divided we are right now as a nation. But what's interesting is that the one thing that unites us among this extreme partisanship is the fact that everyone believes that his or her political convictions are an expression of love for this country. So those on the far right and those on the far left both claim to love this country. But in this deeply polarized age, more and more people have come to equate love for country with loyalty to one's tribe. We believe so fervently that our political convictions are the only possible expression of true love for this nation that anyone who thinks otherwise must secretly hate this country. As a result, we've told ourselves that it's okay to despise those who disagree with us. And based on this, we've justified treating our political opponents in an ungodly manner. In this situation, do you see how love for country, as expressed through political tribal loyalty, trumps love for God? Because it's been used to justify ungodly behavior. So I want to try to say this as clearly as I can. If loyalty to your political tribe 
leads you to act in an ungodly manner toward your neighbor in word or deed or attitude, then I would argue that you've placed your love for country over your love for God. It's an important teaching for all of us. Now it is good and it is right to be engaged in the political process. It's good to be a member of a political party, to run for office, to be active in a campaign. It's natural to feel very strongly about political issues, especially in a democratic republic like ours where we have a responsibility to be engaged and to vote. But we have to be wary of allowing loyalty to a political tribe to come in and destroy our love for our neighbors. Now there's one more paragraph in our reading and it tackles the subject of how we're meant to live in relation to the state, especially in relation to a state, the very structure of which was built on an ungodly foundation. So in verses 13 to 17, this is what Peter says. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That is an astonishing paragraph. When Peter wrote this letter, the Roman Empire was essentially a totalitarian state in which the emperor claimed to be a god and demanded to be worshipped. In this reality, Peter tells the Christians to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And what I believe he means in short is play by the rules. They're not always going to be fair, but God has ordained human government for the ordering of society. This is a passage I have had to come back to many times over the course of this pandemic. As the rules about masks and social distancing have changed time and again, often without a sensible explanation, I've been encouraged by some to ignore them altogether. And I've resisted this urge because although I may disagree with our government on innumerable issues, I believe that we have a responsibility to submit. This submission, however, it's not absolute. And that's important. Notice verse 16. Live as people who are free, Peter writes. We're not slaves to human institutions. The government can't control us in any ultimate sense because we belong to another. Remember, we're sojourners, we're exiles, resident aliens who serve a different king. But we're not to flaunt our freedom or to use it as an excuse to do whatever we want. As Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And it's that last line that puts it all into perspective. We're subject to human institutions, but we are servants of God alone. As Peter goes on to say in the next verse, we honor the emperor, but God is the only one that we fear. Now, we don't have time to talk about other biblical texts that might help us to flesh out a more robust and nuanced theology of politics. And these are incredibly complex topics. 
I do believe that there are times when the gospel invites us into civil disobedience and sometimes when the gospel demands it. But we must, remember Peter, we must remember Peter's injunction, followed closely by Paul in Romans 13, that even though we are citizens of a far greater kingdom, we're called to be subject to the authority of those who govern us here and now. We're sojourners and exiles. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. This means that every local church is like an embassy or a consulate. We're an outpost of the kingdom set down in a foreign land. And we gather here as resident aliens to worship our king and to remind each other of home. But it's hard. It's hard to be foreigners. We need each other. And we need each other perhaps more than we imagine. It's no wonder then that as Jesus finished his prayer in John 17, the night before he died, that he prayed for the unity of his people. I do not ask for these only, he prayed, meaning the 12. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you be in us and among us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you draw us to one another in a unity that cannot be undone by the power of the world around us? Would you show us what it means to be residents of the kingdom of God and residents of this country as well, to love you and to love our neighbors? We pray that as we are an outpost, an embassy, a consulate, a consulate in this city, that we might shine forth your grace, your glory, and most of all, your love to the city around us that we might be a kingdom people set apart for your glory. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.